queer circles, anecdotally, most of us would accept a famous phrase, which is that people will make up their minds about a stranger in less than 10 seconds. Now, if you do believe this, and I must say I do, I think it's worth us looking at what did they judge you on? If they're going to make up their minds about you in such a short period of time, what is it that they use as a basis to judge you? And how important is it? Making up the 100%, there are three elements. One is worth 7%, one is worth 38%, and the final one is worth 55%. So what do you think? If we're talking about the three elements, voice, body language, and words, which one do you think is the killer element? Stay tuned and all will be explained. Welcome to Career Chinwags for the 21st century. I'm a career practitioner who's worked with thousands of clients over the past 20 years, so I've had quite a lot of time to think about career things. Each fortnight, I pick up on an issue that takes my fancy. Some are extremely practical, such as episode four, where I think I give some interesting advice on how to prepare for a job interview on Zoom. Other episodes tend to cover more big picture topics, such as Podcast 15, where I encouraged anyone who ever has to recruit someone to see the world from the candidate's side so that you don't miss out on excellent employees. In today's episode, I'm continuing on from my previous Types of Interviews podcast, and I'm going to cover First Impressions, and I'm going to give you tips to make sure you've got it covered. Coming back to my little survey, my little questionnaire, what were the results? Hopefully you know already, but body language is the dominant factor. Body language is 55% of the impression you make on a stranger. Your voice is still really important at 38% and words come in with 7%. Obviously today I'm going to start talking about body language and things that you need to think about to prepare well for an interview. The first thing is, what are you going to wear? And the standard piece of advice is to match the level of formality of the person interviewing you, and if in doubt, go slightly more formal. For example, if you were applying for a job on a factory floor, and the supervisor came to interview you wearing a pair of overalls, that doesn't mean you'd turn up to the interview wearing the same thing. You would wear something slightly more formal. So you would wear trousers, perhaps, and a polo shirt, or trousers and a short sleeve open shirt. I think life is easier for males in the senior levels of the corporate world because you have the suit. I've spoken about this in other podcasts. It's like a coat of armor. You put the suit on, you instantly have gravitas. It hides a number of body issues. I think that's why it's persisted all these centuries. Most male execs these days would probably not wear the tie. Um, If you're not going to wear a tie, I recommend you go for a stronger looking shirt so that you use your shirt to make a bit of a statement because often that was the purpose of the tie. You could show a bit of personality with your tie. In my experience, the women clients I work with struggle more than the men, perhaps because there's more choice or perhaps because they don't feel comfortable using clothes to convey power. Often I find women will come in and they'll look quite dowdy They may have a black jacket, which is a different black color to the black skirt that they're wearing, which just, you know, it's just mismatched and and doesn't look strong. So be very careful if you're a female about what it is you want to convey and what it is you're going to wear. An often ignored part of body language is your actual stance. 
What I mean by that is, firstly, I suppose in, in reception, how are you sitting? What we don't want is for you to have your mobile phone out, hunched over the phone, tap, 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 scroll, scroll, scroll. Put your phone away, sit up strong. The receptionist will be checking you out. So you want to convey assurance and strength. And the next thing's quite hard. When you walk, it's good if you've got a nice, strong, calm walk where you have your shoulders back. When you're in the room, I'd like you to think about something that's called Solar's position, which I'll explain obviously in a minute. And I find almost nobody's heard of it. I was exposed to it years ago when I was doing some training about communication and I use it now to prepare my clients. It's so important in the workplace, but of course I don't use it for the workplace. I use it to prepare people for interviews. Solar's position is S-O-L-E-R and I'm going to go through each of them one at a time. S stands for square on. Now, this is not an issue usually in an interview. Most people have enough common sense that they realize they need to look at the person who's interviewing them. It can become a bit of an issue if there's a panel interview. In a panel interview, you would spend slightly more time looking at the person who asked you the question, but you must make sure that you look at the other people on the panel so that they don't feel excluded. That's an easy one. O is for open torso. Errors here, I found, start to become a bit more common. And of course, the classic is sitting with your arms folded. I have interviewed somebody who did that, believe it or not. People say you shouldn't even have one arm crossed across your body because it makes you look defensive. L, this is now starting to be quite difficult. This is the error that most people get tripped up by. L is obviously when you're sitting, lean forward slightly. The days of us being taught how to sit up properly are long gone, and that is why I think most people find this so difficult. Let's look at some of the errors that alienate people. The first one is not that common. I have seen it happen, where people lean back in the chair and they put their arms behind their head, and this makes you look very arrogant. Much more common is when the person slides down slightly in the chair and leans back away from everybody else. And that makes it look like you really don't want to be there, that you're removing yourself from the situation. The rule is that you need to sit back in the chair and lean forward slightly. But you need to lean forward slightly with your shoulders back because if you sit back in your chair and you lean forward slightly and your shoulders are hunched forward, again, it doesn't make you look strong. However, you do not want to look like a sergeant major with your shoulders too far back. And you need to be able to keep it up. I think because we're not trained to sit properly, you might remember for the first few instances of the interview and then forget over time and start to fall back as the interview goes on into bad old habits. The next element of Solar's position is eye contact, and eye contact will vary considerably according to the culture that you're in. So you do need to be cognizant of the culture that you're interviewing in. And what I'm going to talk to you about now would be really if you were interviewing in mainstream corporate Australia. The rules in this situation is that the listener must maintain 100% eye contact. The speaker must hold eye contact for a period of time and then it is the speaker's responsibility to break the eye contact. If the speaker doesn't realise this, it forces the listener to break the eye contact because it's starting to turn into a staring competition and that makes the listener feel very awkward and uncomfortable. 
Typically, I find that introverts struggle with eye contact more than extroverts. In an extreme example, I've only ever seen this once. The person's eyes slid back and forth horizontally, continually, and did not hold one spot at all. And of course, this person conveyed very high levels of discomfort with the situation. Sometimes a person who struggles with eye contact has realized that they struggle with eye contact and then they overcompensate. So they break that rule. They hold the eye contact and it goes on and on and on. And as I said, it forces the listener then to break the eye contact. When you break the eye contact, it's okay to look down, but occasionally I would look up. I think if every single time when you broke the eye contact, you look down again after a while, it might make you look like you're lacking in confidence. And the final element of solace position, the R, is relax. But of course, we don't mean slumped. What we mean is no repetitive gestures. Now, I have seen some extremes in my day. One of the earliest was this amazingly smooth and charming and apparently confident person who was wearing a suit. And every time I'd ask him a question, he would tug the lapels of his jacket down. So I had to try and get him to break that habit. I recently changed my practice and decided that I would not offer one only interview skills practice session because it's almost impossible for me to help the person enough. And it was because of this one person. So he was a senior exec and he had an interview the next day. When he came in and practiced, he had two bad habits. One was he fiddled with his wedding ring. Um, His wife subsequently told me that he took it off for the interview. So that was okay. But it was amazing. Every time he would answer a question, he would flick his tie. And I don't think he would have been able to break that habit in time for that interview. As I said, that's why people need to do at least two interview school sessions with me and never so close to the interview. Okay, so that's body language. Let's look at the next element, voice. Remember, voice is still really important. It's nearly 40% of the impression you make on somebody. And occasionally I remember to ask people and I say, look, I don't want an answer. This is really just to get you to think about it. But do you know what your voice sounds like? And do you think your voice is an asset or do you think your voice is a liability? And if you don't know, why don't you know when so much of the impression you make on other people comes from your voice? Let's look at some of the common habits. And I must say these aren't so common, but anyway, let's deal with them. Some people have a high pitched voice. I think I've done the opposite over the years. I think when I was in my early 20s, I didn't want to have a high-pitched voice, so I went too low. I think I've done a bit of damage to my voice accordingly or because of this, and now, even as I'm speaking, I'm really trying to have my voice be quite a lot higher because I think it gets quite scratchy when it's low because, as I said, I think I've damaged my voice. Again, not that common, but some people have a nasal tone when they speak. But let's say you have a perfectly modulated voice. It's actually more complicated than that. Let me give you an example. You may be speaking in a perfectly lovely way and your voice is really, really nice and there's nothing wrong. It's not nasally. It's not high pitched. But notice there's no light and shade in my voice at the moment. And so after a while, people are not going to listen to me because there's just nothing there to grab their attention. We are supposed to use our voice to signal importance. So we are supposed to say something louder when it's important and softer when it's not so important. And we're supposed to vary the speed. So when something's not that important, notice how quickly I just spoke. I rattled over the words. But when I really want to say something is important, 
Notice what I've done. I've slowed down. It's not just a matter of having a perfectly modulated voice. You need to make sure that your voice has variation in pace and variation in loudness. What I want to do is talk about rising intonation because this is really what is possibly going to damage your interview performance. Now, every time I come back from an overseas trip, not that we've done it much these days, I think most of us who come back, we're struck by the, our Aussie accent. But what I notice is what I call the dreaded rising intonation. Now, I haven't met many people who know what rising intonation is, so I probably had better explain it. Rising intonation is when you raise your voice at the end of a phrase or a sentence. And the sole purpose of doing that in the English language is to signal to the listener that you are asking a question. So that is the only time you are ever supposed to do it. What we do in Australia is we do it enormously. Some people actually like it and there's been articles written about it saying that it's very unpretentious of us that we do it. And it's because of our easygoing nature. I find that young women tend to do it more than any other group of my clients. And I've actually heard Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, do it. So it's not just us Aussies who do it. It's not a class-based thing. Who cares? I can hear you ask. Catherine, are you just being a purist again? Look, I am a purist. If I am listening to the radio and unfortunately even on the ABC these days, a lot of the presenters and politicians speak this way, I, I just can't stand it. I've got to turn it off after a while. It drives me crazy. But when I prepare people for interviews, I definitely put that aside. The problem with doing it in an interview is that you're questioning everything you say. So let's look at some examples. They might say, what are your strengths? And you say, I've always had good leadership skills. I've always had the ability to get people to come on board with my ideas. You are questioning your own content. It can be just a disaster. And if you do it sentence after sentence after sentence, and I've heard people do it in separate phrases within sentences, that's how much they do it, it can also drive the listener crazy if the listener like me doesn't like it. I make a judgment call when I'm working with people because some people have this as a bad habit, but exactly as I'm speaking now, they have a very strong delivery style. So if that's the case, I just let it go through to the keeper. What I get worried about is if somebody has a more hesitant style and they're much more gentle, but then they do that all of the time, that's when I raise it as an issue and try and get the person to break the habit. Interestingly, and this again is just me anecdotally saying this, I've found people will do it in an interview when they're presenting a really boring list. So they'll say, well, then I went to the shop and then I bought some eggs and then I decided to cook an omelette. And what I've worked out is they're so bored with their own content that their voice is just going into this pattern of na 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 And when I get them to rephrase their content such that it's more dynamic, lo and behold, there's no more rising intonation. So just be careful again. It's often a signal that your actual content is boring. How do you break yourself of any of these voice habits that I've spoken about? I think there's three clear stages. The first stage is when you don't even notice you're doing it and somebody else has to help you. The second stage is when you say the word and after you've said it, you realize you've made the mistake. And that's the most annoying stage, I think. And the third stage is when you're able to stop the error before speaking more and more until finally you've eliminated the habit. It can take a while. So again, if you're worried about your interview performance and you've got some important interviews coming up, go and see somebody. 
I think you need to see somebody who notices. And again, it's a judgment call. If I'm working with a lawyer and the lawyer says something, I think, oh dear. But if their interview is next week, I probably wouldn't say anything because they're not going to be able to change that habit and it might undermine their confidence if they realize they're not going to be able to change it. So again, I think my constant message here is do some initial prep with interviews well before you've got an an important one. Last but not least, let's look at words. Yes, words are worth 7%, but it doesn't mean they're not important. What we mean by the 7% is if your words send one message and your body language and your voice send a different message, nobody takes any notice of your words. And there is some thought that if this is the case where there's this disconnect, that not only do they not take any notice of your words, but they believe you even less than they might have. So that's why body language and voice are so important. But if your body language and voice are all okay, then they will really be taking notice of your words. I have talked about this in one of my other podcasts. I can't remember which one, so I'm going to go over this briefly. But your challenge is to navigate between ordinary everyday words and precision. And what we don't want is overly formal language. And I call that corporate speak or government speak. It's not a good idea to think that dragging out every big word you can think of is going to impress somebody. It doesn't. And I will stop people and I'll say, look, would you talk to me like that if we were having coffee in a coffee shop? And all of them, except for one person who was a politician, he said, no, I would talk to you like that in a coffee shop. Okay, okay, that's interesting. All of them will say no. And I'll say we'll talk naturally and normally. The precision comes in with vocabulary. So you do need to have a wide vocabulary such that you can choose the precise word you want to use to convey precisely what it is you want to convey. But don't tell me that you took your team on a journey. I'll just say, okay, where'd you go? Paris? Do not use impersonal corporate speak. It's horrible. In regards to words, I find senior people are the worst culprits. And I think because they're going for senior roles, they think, as I said, that they have to impress people. It might impress them that you've got such an extensive vocabulary, but it's dangerous for two reasons. One is it's much harder to follow. So the listener has to do much more work to concentrate, to follow your language. I use the example of Friday afternoon, sun streaming through the window. They're just going to stop listening to you after a while if you make it too hard for them. But the second reason it's dangerous is there's nothing warm about corporate speak. And really, part of your aim in the interview is to make your boss, prospective boss, want to work with you in a normal professional way, of course. Coming back to first impressions, I used to think it was really bad. And so I can remember interviewing somebody and the person actually looked down at notes basically the whole time. And I told myself, just ignore the fact that he's breaking the rules of eye contact. I always did my best to overcome this first impression that I would have of people. But interestingly, a few years ago, I watched a documentary which basically said it's it's an appropriate survival skill. Now, I don't know about that, but people will judge you. And so make sure that you think about it. And because it's so fundamental, coming back to my constant, constant mantra, Because it's so fundamental, it takes a long while for you to change. So find a reliable judge, 
get yourself assessed and then get started on making the changes. Thanks for listening to this podcast. As always, if you like what you've heard, I'd love it if you could share it or leave a review. At this stage, I'm still doing a podcast every fortnight and next episode, I'm going to talk about female salary negotiation. Remember, I've got notes about this on the website. So if you want to check it out, there'll be backup information at careerconsult.com.au. And I do a mail out once a fortnight and it varies between a video, a blog, an infographic and, and podcast. If you're interested, contact the office or you'll find a sign up form on the website. Let's finish with the hashtag, hashtag, why not be happy at work? Mm-hmm.